Good morning, everybody. Um, I'd like to introduce you to our podcast from ASPS on controversies in abdominoplasty. We have a really esteemed group of colleagues uh, that will be participating this morning. It's a little bit of a different format because we don't have slides, so we're going to talk about some various points. Before we begin, I'd like to have each of the um, guests please introduce themselves, tell us about your background, where you are, and uh, your titles. Carl, you want to start? Thanks, Alan. I'm Carl Gutowski. I'm a plastic surgeon in Chicago, been in practice for over 20 years. Uh, my practice has a very high percentage of body contouring patients with maybe an emphasis on some of the higher BMI patients that, uh, that traditionally are not considered candidates for body contouring. Thank you. Lauren? Hi there. Good morning. Lauren Rosenfield, practice uh, in the Silicon Valley in the Bay Area. Been doing so for 36 years. Uh, and probably my focus is on safety, regardless of, of that's my lens, regardless of the surgery. So uh, want to get great results, but not at the expense of safety. So that will permeate everything I say today. Great. And Chris Panucci. Uh, hi there, Chris Panucci, uh, plastic surgeon in Spokane, Washington at Plastic Surgery Northwest. Absolutely thrilled to be here. Uh, my practice is largely centered around aesthetic surgery and reconstructed breast surgery. And I have a almost 20 year trajectory in uh, thinking about and examining uh, DBTPE in plastic surgery patients. Great. And I'm Alan Matarasso. I practice uh, in Manhattan. I'm a clinical professor at the Hofstra Northwell System and my practice is essentially uh, aesthetic surgery. I want to keep in mind, I want the audience to keep in mind that we aren't using slides, so we're going to discuss certain aspects that that maybe don't need slides to, to discuss. Tell us what you're doing preoperatively to, uh, that we may not know from a presentation to ensure safety of your abdominoplasty patient. We'll start with Carl Gutowski. Sure. Um, I think it's pretty standard to do the DVT or a VTE screening assessment. Um, I think most people are using the, the ones that ASPS has put out. Um, I do not routinely anticoagulate patients unless they're high risk, but if they're high risk, I try to do risk modification also. Um, I operate in a surgery center or in a hospital, depending on the patient's medical status, BMI, length of surgery, et cetera. And then, of course, having discussions with the patients on their expectations. If they have any comorbidities, then we get the primary care physicians involved in sorting those out. Uh, generally, I've, I've had very few, if any, uh, significant complications by following that approach. Most of the things I have to deal with are kind of minor wound healing issues, et cetera. Next, uh, Dr. Panucci. Preoperative pearls. Yeah, I think it's a great question. Um, in in the preoperative setting, I think that there's lots uh, there's lots that can be done. I totally agree with Carl that the uh, the importance of a patient centric risk stratification using the ASPS and AAPS endorsed uh, 2005 Caprini risk score. Uh, I don't think that that can be overstated. The importance of that, um, and the reason is not just to create the aggregate score, but um, it, it in some patients that aggregate score allows you to give patients a percentage-based risk. It also allows you to identify risk factors that are potentially modifiable in the preoperative setting. Things like uh, outside sources of estrogen, recent operations, multiple lost pregnancies, and the role of combined procedures. So I think in the preoperative setting, 
having a patient-centric discussion about their own risk factors and their risk level and modifying risk as appropriate. Chris, do you um, advocate a certain number which you would consider anticoagulation first? And second, do you use the risk profile uh, stratification for any other aesthetic operations? Uh, I, I use the I use the risk stratification for all of my patients, both my aesthetic and my reconstructive, not just abdominoplasty. And and to be fair, like the there are a very limited number of patients in my own practice, uh, aesthetic practice, who I would provide anticoagulation to. But for me, that is a far downstream um, consideration. There are literally a dozen things that you can think about doing that have nothing to do with blood thinners. Um, in terms of risk modification, risk elimination um, in the preoperative and the intraoperative setting. Let, let's um, pull on that thread a little bit. Uh, can you just give us a few, because I, I think many of our listeners go use this, the system and then they get to a certain number and they, they go right to a medication. What are some yep. of the things you do before you do that? Alan, I think it's a wonderful point that um, that the opportunity to decrease clot risk uh, extends far beyond the use of anticoagulation. Um, for example, in the preoperative setting, um, there's things that you can't change about a patient, right? You can't change their age, you can't change their family history, but you can know about those things. Um, when I think about modifiable risk factors or risk factors that might require a further workup in the pre-op setting, I'm thinking about things like uh, their body mass index. Is now the right time to have an operation for them? Uh, outside sources of estrogens? Can you hold oral contraceptives? Um, can you take away hormone replacements in the perioperative period? Um, did they recently have a major illness or a hospitalization that you can just choose to delay them farther from? Um, COVID is a great one, right? The best data we have from COVID is 2020. Um, the 2020 data say that risk for clots and death and pulmonary complications are higher when you do elective surgery within seven weeks of a COVID diagnosis. Now that's the 2020 version of COVID, which I think we all agree was more severe. Um, patients that you identify that they have uh, multiple lost pregnancies might warrant a further workup for a genetic hypercoagulability. Um, these are all things that you can be doing in the preoperative setting, and especially in the aesthetic population where surgery is not time sensitive, um, you do have the opportunity to identify these risk factors and potentially modify them. Um, I don't want to speak for too long because I'm sure you have other questions. There's there's a similar paradigm that you can use in the operating room, and I'm sure that we'll get to that point as well. I think those are very good points. I just want to just see if we can expand just a moment on those. In terms of hormones, um, IUDs that are drug eluting, do you remove those? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, I, I, estrogen is the major driver. Um, of, of clot risk. And certainly there are a lot of um, contraceptive medicines or hormone replacement that are estrogen and progesterone combined. Um, I used to take out uh, all Mirena IUDs. And then I had dinner with uh, Sharam Salami, who's a, a plastic surgeon in uh, Seattle and his wife, who's an OB. Um, and she really helped me to understand some of the physiology and the drugs of, of Mirena's. And so now I don't routinely take those out. Okay. Um, for any estrogen products, be they for oral contraceptive or for hormone replacement, um, those are medicines that I am having a patient centric discussion about, you know, if you, if you have a, while, while taking away any estrogen can decrease your risk, if your baseline risk is already a fraction of a percent. And if taking away that estrogen is going to completely dysregulate someone's menstrual cycle or put them at risk of getting pregnant, again, it becomes a patient centric conversation about the risks and benefits.
Great. And I, I would emphasize that um, I think getting a history of miscarriages on all patients uh, that are not due to IVF uh, is essential in, in tip-off for genetic prothrombogenic factors, which certainly increase the risk for DVT. Let's take that next, that same question to Dr. Rosenfeld. What can you tell us that you're doing preoperatively um, and extending into the operating room to decrease risk? Sure. Uh, clearly, this is something I think about in the middle of the night. Um, I think that the first thing is with the Caprini score, as I've read, written about, I mean, it, it, it's, it's all we have and it's the best we have, but it clearly is not specific to plastic surgeons and specifically to aesthetic surgeons. So I've done my own modulation where if you include, you know, patients traveling from New York to have the surgery because they didn't like Dr. Matarasso or they are going to have plication, um, that increases the points. And by my evaluation, any patient is going to need, by the time you've added on these points, including length of surgeries, that they're going to all hit the bell. So I oral anticoagulate all my patients. That said, when it comes to patient selection, I'm far more selective than I was the first half of my practice. I will not operate in general on obese patients over 30. Uh, I will, we can talk about later what I do with those patients, smokers, people that are otherwise unhealthy. It's just not going to happen. Uh, in terms of prep, I talk to patients in the following way. I say surgery is like a mar marathon and you don't decide to go on a marathon on the weekend. Uh, without preparing, planning, and and training. Same's true with surgery. So I want them to get on whatever diet and exercise program they can. Get a rest. I give them a rest. I give them a spirometer in advance. I make sure they get proper history and physical, not a cursory one. And they've got good post-op help, planned and prepared. From for the surgery itself, as I mentioned, I do less plication now. If a patient has obvious intra-abdominal fat. I'm just not plicating, which has got to reduce the risk of, of DVT. The abdominal binder, I do like it for the, like a weightlifter likes it. I put a, a, a mark along the border of where I'm going to bind down to. So there's no chance that anybody will ever pull it tighter. Um, the length of surgery, I'm very efficient conscious. I don't want to be on that table any longer than I have to. And then post-op care is mandatory. RN post-op care. They're never to go home in the care of anyone else but my nurses who know what to do with them for a few days with a pump that they go home with on their calves. So at every step, I'm trying to do something to make sure that this Damocles sword over our, all our heads is avoided. And so far, so good. Uh, uh, Dr. Eric Swanson has joined us. Eric, can you introduce yourself and then address that same question about uh, preparation. Right, yeah. I'm Eric Swanson. I'm in private practice in Kansas City. And this is a subject of interest of mine going back over a decade. And I've got a different perspective on this. I, you know, I realized uh, years ago that we didn't have much good evidence-based medicine on this subject in plastic surgery. So I, I did a, a prospective study of my own patients over five years using ultrasound screening to identify what are the risk factors, I mean, what, what does correlate with increased risk? And you were discussing hormone supplementation. I found that hormone supplementation was not associated with DVT risk. So I certainly do not have my patients stop hormone supplementation. 
I think it can cause more harm than good. My studies show that the only independent risk factor for DVTs was age. Um, other things that we've traditionally known as risk factors like combined surgery or uh, abdominoplasty, um, the, the risk is that these patients tend to be older. So when you do a regression analysis, it actually turns out, this is a little surprising, that age is actually the most significant risk factor, which we can't really modify. I don't think we can predict who's going to develop a DVT, and we should stop. I, I think it's a pretense to, to use any sort of risk assessment system. They don't work. Um, so I certainly don't uh, advocate any risk assessment system. So what, what do I do that's a little different? Um, that's based on, uh, I think, the best evidence. Number one, I don't use general anesthesia with muscle relaxation because I think that helps preserve the calf muscle pump. So I keep the calf muscle pump intact uh, when I when I operate. And, of course, I use ultrasound uh, surveillance. Uh, I, I, there are uh, members of this group. Do any of you have any of you also incorporated ultrasound? Because you really cannot detect, you can't rely on clinical signs. And, in fact, so much of the research uh, has, has not used ultrasound uh, in consecutive patients. And if you don't do that, you really don't know how many patients are, in fact, developing DVTs. In fact, there was a study out of Sloan, uh, Memorial Sloan Kettering, Lomain. They found that nine of the patients that they thought had DVTs, when they did ultrasound, there were no DVTs. And the four that did have DVTs, there were no clinical signs, just showing how unreliable clinical signs are. So I'm a big advocate. You know, we have the technology. Check your patients after surgery for DVTs using ultrasound. If you detect a clot, of course, that's, you know, you then institute anticoagulation. So you make the diagnosis before the treatment. You don't just treat everybody with anticoagulation, which causes a lot of bleeding and does no, you know, it's not doing any good. It's not improving your DVT rate. And it's just adding a, a lot of hematomas that you'll have to look after. So I advocate a different approach. And I, I think it's based on the best evidence. Eric, when you say you, you do the ultrasound, how often are you doing it post-op? Right, so everybody gets a pre-op ultrasound. And by the way, I think that's, you know, Dr. Panucci was saying, uh, you know, you need to discuss risk with your patient. And there's no better opportunity than to do an ultrasound assessment of the leg veins because the patient knows you're looking for blood clots and they're very aware of the risk. And so we do that's virtually always negative, of course. And then, uh, then I repeat the scan the day after surgery. And then approximately one week afterwards. It's, you know, it's at a week, but sometimes patients come in a little bit before that or a little bit after that, but it's, it's at about a week after surgery. So I do that routinely. And, and you, you don't go out six weeks? No, I don't do another one in six weeks, no. Okay. And when you say age is a risk factor, what's your cutoff for age? Because we always talk about um, comorbid medical conditions as opposed to age per se. What is your age? Well, my study found that over the age of 50, the risk goes up. I think it was about three times. Um, and this compares with, if you do a Caprini score, you're identifying individuals with a risk that's about two, I think it was two and a half times <clears throat> greater. So age is actually a better marker for risk than doing a 40-point uh, Caprini score. So, but I, you know, if I have a patient over 50, it's not, I don't really treat them differently. I think it heightens the importance of um, screening them for blood clots because patients over 50 are at increased risk, and that's 
and that makes sense physiologically because the valves stiffen as we get older. So it makes sense that the risk and studies show that the risk goes up exponentially. You know, very few young people get, or particularly children, get DVTs, but the risk goes up over 50. So, um, you know, I think it's important, particularly, well, I screen everybody, but particularly in that age group, it's a good idea. You know, there's absolutely no reason not to. I mean, it's harmless, it's inexpensive, it's extremely well tolerated by patients. And it's the only way we can really identify, as I mentioned, clinical evaluation is inadequate. You, you want to diagnose a DVT on an ultrasound, not on an autopsy. You know, you don't want to have a patient coming in with an undetected DVT, and now they've developed a pulmonary embolism and could possibly even die from it. So this is a good way to pick up the diagnosis early when the clots are still small and distal and get them started on anticoagulation. This has worked very well in my practice. And it takes, by the way, it takes about five weeks for the clot to resolve on anticoagulation, which is why, you know, a short course of anticoagulation right after surgery is, I, I think it's not going to be effective because it's too early, it's too abbreviated, and of course you're you're doing everybody, so most of the patients that you're treating are, are never destined to get a DVT in the first place. Just briefly, Eric, and, and then I want to ask the other panelists to comment on, on, on your thoughts. Briefly, do you treat, two questions, you know, with the ultrasound you're doing in the office, well, it's actually three, you're not looking at pelvic clots, number one. Number two, are you treating clots below the knee? And number three, we've all seen people that at four or five weeks develop a clot. Can you address those? Right. You do not pick up pelvic clots. Uh, fortunately, I, I haven't, uh, been, you know, since I've been doing this, I've been doing this uh, 10 years now, and, and I haven't had a patient who had a pelvic clot. I, um, so... The ones that are detected are typically, fortunately, they're small and they're distal. So uh, those clots, of course, are less dangerous. What you don't want to do is you don't want to miss a clot that's evolving and catch them, you know, and, and they're not detected early. So um, so at one week, when we that's when most of the clots are detected. They tend to be small, distal. They're distal to the popliteal vein. Those ones carry a good prognosis. They're started on um, anti, you know, oral anticoagulants. And then those patients, by the way, are followed along at weekly intervals to ensure that the clot is resolving. Do, uh, I'd like to ask the, any other panelists to comment on this concept. Yeah, hi, it's Carl. Um, so so I, um, I have a handheld ultrasound and I've been exploring doing this. I, I think, Eric, you have a video on how to do this posted somewhere online. But if I'm not mistaken, you have a tech come in and do this, or do you do this yourself? And if you have a tech, um, should could we be doing this ourselves as part of our um, abdominoplasty postoperative care with a five thousand dollar ultra handheld ultrasound? Yeah, you know, I actually employ a full time stenographer in my practice, um, and I'll tell you, she's so useful in my practice because there's so so many other applications, as you know, for ultrasound in a plastic surgeon's practice. For example, when I do abdominoplasties, she always examines the abdomen beforehand to make sure there are, especially in patients who have previous surgery, to make sure there are no unknown vascular defects or hernias that are good to know about before you operate on the patient. And by the way, just getting to the subject of rectus plication, um, I don't think that's a risk factor. And I think it's very helpful for, you know, Part of the, uh, the result in abdominoplasty comes from doing a good abdominoplasty uh, repair. And if you're doing it on a patient who's breathing spontaneously, they're not paralyzed, 
you can quickly, if, if there is any alteration in respirations, like if you think you're too tight, you'll know about it quickly. So it's got that advantage as well. But I would do it routinely. And as you know, I've been checking everybody with the ultrasound after surgery, and I've been surprised at how few uh, clots we've had the day after surgery, which says to me that the plication of the rectus muscles is not causing a problem with regard to increasing the risk. Lauren, Chris, any comments on this? I think there's a there's a few things that we're saying. We I know Alan, your original question was about what we're doing in the preoperative setting, and we we've definitely jumped to the post-op. Um, with regards to risk stratification, Eric said that age is the risk factor that he uses a cutoff, and and specifically because I think Eric, you said that it it identifies like a two or threefold difference in risk for clots. Um, worth noting is that the Caprini score in inpatient data for plastic surgery identifies about a 15-fold variation between your very low-risk and your very high-risk patients. Um, and so, again, it definitely can be a useful tool to identify a wide spectrum of clot risk amongst the overall patients that walk in the door. Um, I think my biggest concern, speaking, Alan, to your question about ultrasound, um, my biggest concern is that the ultrasound is not preventative in any way. Um, it is, in fact, permissive, allowing a clot to form and then diagnosing it after it does. And if you're doing this in a, in a very highly selected aesthetic population that is at low risk at baseline, then, you know, maybe there's not that many people that would have benefited from risk modification. But in one of my own studies with breast augmentation, um, doing risk stratification on 100 consecutive augmentation patients, about a third coming through the door had some opportunity for risk modification. Um, and so I do feel like uh, an ultrasound-based technique does miss that opportunity. When Eric published his ultrasound data, uh, Peter Henke, who's the current chair of vascular at uh, University of Michigan, wrote a very um, intriguing uh, editorial to it. Um, and, and, you know, he said that there were two big things. One is that um, the, the concept um, forgets two things. One is that when you develop a clot, those clots can damage the vein wall. And so patients that develop clots that are then diagnosed are at higher risk for long-term leg complications like the post-thrombotic syndrome. Uh, in addition, the biggest risk factor for developing a clot based on a ton of data, both in plastics and outside of plastics, is actually a personal history of clot. And so once these patients uh, have, been, have had a clot occur, they are at higher risk for clots moving forward. So those are, those are definitely two of my concerns with an ultrasound-based uh, based approach is that it diagnoses the clot after it's formed, but it actually does nothing to prevent it. Yes, uh, it, it prevents it from getting larger once it's diagnosed, but it doesn't do anything pre to prevent it from forming in the beginning. Uh, I just want to just jump to Lorne. Um, I'll go briefly um, yeah. in the interest of time. I think one thing I want to parenthetically say, as I've mentioned before, I think this is an important risk, but I think it's important to at least push against the idea that this risk is... Uh, so high now it, it, that even other surgeries that are being done, such as Brazilian fat grafting, is is even lower risk. That's data that we have from 20 years ago as far as DVT risk of abdominoplasty. So I think that needs to be that needs to be reassessed in our minds. It's up, but with all the things we're all doing now to prevent, this is not recorded in our original studies. So our risks are a lot less. And kudos to us and the patients that are abiding. As far as the number one risk being 50, the age, I think it's confoundingly multifactorial. I think more important is to do a Nancy Reagan, just 
just say no. Uh, be, be very selective about your patients. Don't operate on them. That's the best prophylaxis. Seeing patients that are 35 BMI and you're doing all this great prep and advance and studies and post-op care, you have got them already in a bad place and we shouldn't be operating on them in the first place. Or modulate mindfully. Don't do a plication. Don't do a long surgery. Don't do multiple surgeries, et cetera. Two things have come up uh, in the course of the discussion. One is the BMI, and the other is diastasis repair. So um, let's again start at the top. Uh, Carl, uh, can you give us your thoughts on the high BMI patient? Let's talk about a 30, and then let's talk about a 35. And let's everybody keep in mind the BMI is under severe pressure now. It's a 1970s data that people really feel is not reflective of health, but that's what we're working with. So can you start with that, Carl? Sure. I think Laura and I are going to need to have our own little uh, debate on this topic of I've slowly pushed that BMI limit in my practice because of some of the patients that are coming to see me. And the biggest problem that I've seen are more wound healing issues as opposed to any any VTE problems. Um, So I do go up to, I've done them as high as BMIs of 50, where I do lipoabdominoplasty. In those cases, uh, I I still use progressive tension sutures as I do in my no drain technique, but I do put drains in for a period of time because some of these patients are a little harder to monitor for seromas. I do have an office ultrasound, which I scan all my patients, um, but I've noticed these higher uh, uh, BMI patients are more prone to forming seromas. I'm more vigilant on wound care in them. I'm not as aggressive on the skin resection, so there's less tension on the final closure. And I am much less likely to do a rectus plication because in a lot of these patients, they still have intra-abdominal fat and a rectus plication in that case isn't really going to help. It'll probably hurt by just causing pain and potentially increasing intra-abdominal pressure. And I have that discussion with them. They understand the rationale for that. But I am more aggressive with the liposuction. I may take four liters of fat off the trunk circumferentially. Um, I do more indirect undermining with the liposuction cannula as opposed to direct undermining to preserve vascularity. And I try to limit uh, the potential uh, direct dead space as opposed to the uh, uh, cannula-created tunneling so that there's less uh, potential for healing problems. But the patients have been happy. They just have understand their limitations. And I show them pictures of higher BMI patients so they understand what's possible and what isn't. You know, Carl, it, it sounds, and I'm going to get to the other panelists, and, and we are mixing this in with diastasis repair. But depending upon how you define an abdominoplasty, it sounds as if you're doing what I might call a paniculectomy with extensive liposuction because you're limiting your undermining and you're not plicating. So, you know, it, it, we may be talking about two different things. Um, Lauren, can you give us your thoughts on this high BMI patient? Right. And I think that when I'm speaking of this, Carol, I'm, I'm speaking of the traditional abdominoplasty that we all were trained to do in some variation with the wide undermining, liposuction, and so on, application. I definitely will not do that surgery in anybody that's got a higher BMI. And as far as BMI goes, I agree as Alan's mentioned, and as we're getting flack, you just look at the patient as I tell residents, you know who you should operate in and who not to based upon your examination and visual um, evidence. So we don't necessarily need that number and nobody abides by it like religion. As far as the alternatives is I stratify. So instead of the high tension or my traditional abdominoplasty, 
then I do do a variation of what Carol's described, what I call the pinch abdominoplasty. It's a variation on a paniculectomy. Big patient, I'll liposuction the whole abdomen, which I don't do on my regular abdominoplasties because of fear of ischemia, but those I can, and I only I excise all undermined skin. No undermined skin is left behind, and I don't placate. And then if they're, if they're uh, in a range of concern um, where they uh, have a, a, what we're calling a higher BMI, where I don't want to do an abdominoplasty traditionally, but they've got more upper abdominal excess rather than the traditional paniculectomy in the lower half, then I'll do a fleur-de-lis at the drop of a hat because the beauty of that is you're only excising what you've undermined and no liposuction. Um, and so you have a much safer procedure and you get more repair. So yes, we're stratifying that surgery is based upon the BMI. At a time when I used to not do them, I now do them with these variations. And that doesn't exclude my telling them you're on a three to six month program before you come to me to try to work on your diet and exercise. And we plug them into our resources to do that, which is a win-win no matter what happens. I think I think if if the other two panelists can weigh in, I think we we can agree that that what we're talking about in this higher BMI patient, if you choose to do them, is really not a traditional abdominoplasty. It's a paniculectomy with limited undermining and no rectus placation. In terms of BMI as a, as a cutoff, for those of you that have enough gray hair, you recall that Patangi used to call it the bronchiectomy patient, um, the, the short squat. Uh, rotund, he didn't look at a BMI, he, he would say those patients were at higher risk and perhaps not do them. But uh, Eric and Chris, if you can weigh in on your thoughts on this higher BMI patient, and then from there, we're going to take it to uh, when you do or don't placate the rectus, because obviously that's part of this discussion, then we'll take it separately. But Eric and Chris, if you can comment on the higher BMI patient. Yeah, you know, in my study, I looked at BMI and BMI did not correlate with DVT risk, and I, I routinely operate on patients with BMIs up to 35, sometimes even higher. We all know that BMIs are, you know, if you've got a very large framed individual or muscular individual, the BMI is not maybe truly representative of their their risk. And I agree, though, with that that short, rotund patient with the kind of beer belly, you've got to, yeah, you've got to be very careful with that patient. And... Uh, Perhaps that would be a situation to either decline the surgery and not repair the, the rectus diastasis. But I routinely, you know, I routinely repair the rectus diastasis. I think it's, you know, it's an important component of the operation. And you know that study by Huang where they measured intra-abdominal pressures. They were all under 20 millimeters. And my own work, you know, using ultrasound afterwards, I have not found that that puts patients at increased risk for a DVT. So I, I certainly, you know, placate routinely. But as I say, I'm operating on patients that are not paralyzed. So when I prepare the muscles, you know, I've got a spontaneously breathing patient. And if there's any change in respirations, I know about it. And I might be inclined to back off on the tightness. You know, getting back to that shorter squat patient, my, my feeling is is that those patients have a lot of intra-abdominal fat, as somebody just mentioned, and all you're doing is pushing the fat from the AP to the lateral direction. So these are the patients that come in afterward and say, my waist is wider. Just quickly before we go to Chris, can you comment, you're not paralyzing them. You don't have any difficulty placating the rectus if they're not paralyzed? No, I don't. Uh, I, I don't paralyze breast patients either. And 
you know, the muscle and a pet press dog does switch a bit, you know, when you're working and you're cauterizing something underneath it. Uh, but I, I find it's not difficult, difficult at all to repair the rectus in a patient that's not paralyzed. Now, the other thing that is I infuse the abdomen with up to one liter of bupivacaine solution, which penetrates the rectus sheet. So you've got some local anesthetic that's helping uh, with your, you know, you've got some regional anesthetic that's assisting. And I find that also reduces uh, the bleeding as well. So, yeah, you don't need to have muscle relaxation to repair the rectus diastasis. Chris, can you comment on, on the high BMI patient? and Yeah, uh, especially for Carl, I'd love to offline see some of your results in these higher BMI patients because part of my reason to not operate on it is I have, a, I have, a, I have trouble getting a result that, that I'm happy with, uh, quite honestly. Um, you know, I don't think that higher BMI alone is a, is a hard no for surgery, but I do feel like it comes with a lot of increased risks. Um, and it's been well shown in literature that DVTPE is one of them. I think the the conversation surrounding plication and forcing that visceral fat into a smaller area is a good one. Uh, Eric mentions the Wong paper from 2014, I think it was, and they showed that uh, there are multiple incremental steps in abdominoplasty um, between um, the plication and the uh, flexing of the bed and the putting on of the garment, um, which each creates small but noticeable increases in intra-abdominal pressure. And some ultrasound data from Arash Momeni, who's currently at Stanford and breast reconstruction patients um, has showed that that actually creates common femoral vein stasis for at least the first two days after surgery. So I think that while we're talking about BMI, I think we're really talking about visceral fat and intra-abdominal volume that that visceral fat lives in and how that relates to intra-abdominal pressure and by extension back pressure on the common femoral veins. I think though, you know, I, I really think that we have to make this distinction because if I'm understanding Carl and what I will occasionally do is I'm really doing a debulking procedure. I'm getting rid of, as Lauren said, any of the non, I'm not undermining that skin, but just the loose skin that you can grasp. And then I'm doing extensive liposuction. That's why I call it a paniculectomy. I'm not flexing the bed. I'm not plicating the rectus muscle. So whether or not those things have an impact, they're not necessary. These are debulking procedures on large patients with extra skin and a lot of fat. And you're basically doing a high volume liposuction with a a pinch, if you will, for lack of a better term, of extra skin. I, I think that operation is a polar opposite to the abdominoplasty that we're all talking about. Abdominoplasty, as it, you know, as it pertains to application, bed flexion, garment, you know, huge limitations, exactly. and, you know, waist flexion and ability to ambulate after surgery. I mean, those are, that's a totally different operation than a paniculectomy with no plication, minimal undermining and uh, no bed flexion. So it, I think they're, even exactly. though they're, they're grouped into the same, you're removing lower abdominal tissue. I think they're very, very, very different operations. Yeah, there. Uh, you know, I, I just submitted something that talks about exactly, it's a debulking operation. It's not abdominoplasty. So to classify that in the high BMI abdominoplasty may be a little bit unintentionally, but disingenuous. Since we've discussed this a little bit, can I ask, starting with Chris, we'll go backwards um, to comment on in general, not in necessarily in the obese patient, uh, the times that you do or don't, I think we have an idea what Eric's feeling is on this, but that you do or don't plicate the rectus. Yeah, it's a great question. I think that um, for the majority of patients that I am uh, that I am taking on a cosmetic abdominoplasty for, I'm going to plicate the rectus because um, it has an incredible um, improvement in waist narrowing, in hip definition, creation of that hourglass, 
and directly addressing uh, the rectus diastasis, which is uh, part of the reason that many women seek abdominoplasty. Um, so it would be very rare for me to take on a cosmetic abdominoplasty. And again, we've talked about the distinction between abdominoplasty and paniculectomy, but it would be very rare for me to take on a cosmetic abdominoplasty where I don't placate the rectus. Um, even, even in my breast reconstruction population, when we do DIEP breast reconstruction, we're routinely placating the upper abdomen in addition to the lower abdominal fascial closure after DIEP harvest. Um, and again, that's because I, I've had a lot of patients come back when I didn't use to placate the rectus um, above the umbilicus. Uh, and you know, they would, you would essentially create that upper abdominal bulging, that beer belly look, because you're tightening the lower abdomen with DIEP, but not the upper abdomen. So in a lot of different facets of my practice, I've seen the, uh, the huge benefit that rectus placation can do. The only time that I wouldn't placate it is in my breast reconstruction population who um, maybe doesn't need it or who has a, a, a other medical comorbid conditions or in the abdominoplasty population if I'm on that paniculectomy spectrum like we've already talked about. I want to get to two important questions, but if I can take the liberty, Eric, it, it sounds like you placate everybody. Carl, it sounds like you're selective. You avoid it in the high BMI or paniculectomy patient. And Lauren, it sounds like you weed out these patients before you get to the operating room. Is that a fair summary? Yes, but I do, I'd do. i like to add something to what Chris said about his breast reconstruction patients, because I've seen this happen a few times where someone else has done a mini tummy tuck and just placated the lower abdomen, thinking they're going to do them a favor, and then the upper abdomen blows out a few months later. Uh, that is why I'm more selective with when I do placation, because sometimes in these higher BMI patients, you placate the lower abdomen, but the upper above the umbilicus is harder to placate because you've got more ribs there. There's not as much tissue to move medially, and that can create an upper abdominal bulge. So I think when you're doing the placation, take a look at what's happening above and below the umbilicus so you don't leave them with a bulge that's much harder to fix later. Yeah. In general surgery, I think we call that a domain issue, Carl? Yeah. Yep. Okay. Uh, Lauren, Eric, do we, did we summarize that? Uh, well, a little bit. I, I'm, I'm more on your, on your uh, plane. I mean, as I mentioned, I, I will do an, a, a patient that's over over 30, 35, if I'm, if I'm going to just do a pinch abdominoplasty, a paniculectomy as you described, and I don't placate. So I'll be very mindful about when I will, will or won't do a placation. It's important that you do proper patient prep and expectation uh, because that's critical that they're not going to have a change in their, in their girth. Although I must point out, and we have to remember this, let's be honest with ourselves and our patients. When we're working with placation, we're dealing with tissues that are that are already failed, they're damaged. And so it's, it's foolhardy to imagine that we're placating and we're gonna get a repair as well as we'd like based upon, it's like reupholstering a sofa with the same upholstery or in a facelift, the skin's damaged. So I think that there are limits, which only makes me more wanna be selective on who I'm gonna placate. A scaphoid patient, a patient who lies flat when they lie down, they don't have intra-abdominal fat, that's the patient you wanna go all hog wild on. Um, one last thing about BMI. I was a general surgeon first. I absolutely defies all history in our surgical literature that obese patients don't have an increased a significant increased risk. In fact, Brodding's papers from cosmetics would prove it's 100% they're going to have some risk 
which we've all identified. It may not be a DVT, but it's lots of other things. So I, as I tell the residents, whenever obesity is a choice on the exam, that's your answer. Um, extending that, um, extending that, Carl had submitted a question, which I think it, it, it's naturally where we go now. When do any of the panelists use absorbable mesh in a diastasis repair or in a patient, as you pointed out, Lauren, that has attenuated fascia? Why don't we start with Carl? Thanks, Alan. So I had the opportunity to, uh, to do a small clinical trial on an absorbable mesh made out of essentially the same thing as PDS suture. And I did it on some regular patients, but then I did start using it on some patients where preoperatively I was concerned that they're going to have just a very significant diastasis with poor tissue. And I sometimes even do an, an ultrasound preoperatively in the office to show them the diastasis and why I may add that mesh. And then I tell the patients I may make that decision intraoperatively. If I do application and the tissue, the fascia looks good and it's the sutures are holding well, I'm not going to put the mesh in. But I think we've all seen these cases where the fascia is attenuated. You can see the fibers are stretching out. You don't know if the suture is going to hold. In those cases, I may take a, uh, a 10 by 25 sheet of mesh. And I think one time I took a 20 by 25 sheet of mesh to reinforce the, uh, the plication as an onlay. Um, I don't have uh, a comparative study or comparative results to, to give you, but I do feel confident that that's helped with uh, preventing of a bulge from recurring. I did use permanent a few times, and one time it came back to bite me because that the permanent can cause problems later. The absorbable, even when I've had the umbilicus open up a little bit, it healed right over without any problems. I, I want to get into lipo, abdominoplasty, and high-def lipo, uh, liposuction with abdominoplasty. So I just want to push forward, but as long as we're talking about this mesh and diastasis repair, can the panelists comment on the patient that you know was flat in the operating room, you did your plication, you did your suction, post-op, you know, they're good. They, they didn't get a seroma and a pseudobursa. You didn't miss an area for liposuction. But two or three months later, they come in and, and they say, gee, it's just not as flat as I wanted it to be. In my experience, that's usually above the umbilicus, not, not in the epigastric area, but uh, just super umbilically. Any comments and thoughts on that? Well, I think that follows what I was saying. You know, we're working with poor tissue. So that's exactly what I'm, I'm pointing out is that the recurrence rate is going to definitely be there, not in everybody. I'd also like to mention that um, when it comes to mesh, I do the same thing in terms of intraop assessment. I really haven't had to use it in a very long time. I'm of, of the ilk of if I don't have to turn my aesthetic surgery into reconstructive surgery and have potential issues with, with rejection or infection, I try to avoid it. And I wouldn't be doing the fascial application anyway, if it's going to start to tear like that. Eric, Chris? Yeah, yeah. I've, I've had patients like that where they've been in the repair the rectus fascia, and they come back, you know, maybe six months later, and they're like, I still have some protuberance here, and I assess them, and I'm thinking, yes, they do still have some laxity, and I've reoperated and basically redone my rectus repair. That's been pretty infrequent, but I have had cases like that. And in terms of mesh, you know, I've never found it necessary to use mesh. And I've got plenty of patients that have previous mesh repairs of the umbilical hernias. And often they tell me that they, and it's been done laparoscopically, probably by a general surgeon. And it's often been ineffective. Um, so, 
and in that situation, I don't try to remove the mesh. I just do the rectus repair. And, you know, so far I have not had a patient where I've not been able to approximate the fascia. I have not had to resort to using mesh. Yeah, Alan, I've definitely seen those patients where they come back and they look a little bit bulgier and it's usually at their three month visit for me versus like their one month visit. Um, changes that I've made, I haven't used mesh um, absorbable or otherwise in my uh, aesthetic population. I certainly use it in my reconstructive uh, DIP population. Um, I have switched to using uh, permanent sutures for the rectus plication as a first layer with an, uh, an overlay of, uh, of an absorbable suture. Um, and I wonder too, if, if the bulging question may be um, what, what Carl and I both mentioned earlier of the sort of redistribution of fat intradominally. If you don't plicate um, the, the correct level, both above and below, are you just displacing that fat so it bulges out at a different location? It's, it's certainly a problem and I've seen it. And do you take those patients back? Uh, I haven't, I haven't had to yet, um, but I'm always trying to think critically about, um, you know, why, why is this bulge there and is it, is it troublesome enough to the patient or to me to take them back? And sometimes it's something that I see and that they're thrilled with the result, uh, but it's me being critical of my own results. Nahas has alluded to this um, from South America about the stretching of the fibers, which may account for some of this. Um, I, uh, since, for the sake of time, I want to move on to everyone's thoughts on the safety in lipoabdominoplasty and then finish up with your thoughts on high-def uh, abdominoplasty. Why don't we start with Lauren? Lauren, can you give us your thoughts on lipoabdominoplasty? Is it really safe or isn't it? Well, I've made, <laughs> myself, I've made myself clear that I don't do that anymore. I've gone the whole route of, of trying all measures to make that safer, whether it's by liposuction, the subscarpa fat, or do what, what Gil Grading or my partner did way before anybody doing a direct excision of the subscarpal fascia, which made way more sense to me because you're going to be more likely to directly not hit vessels that you are blindly going to do with your cannula. But the problem in that case is the scarp is not always so clear and you can still get into the tissues you don't want to more superficially. Can I so interrupt you? Yeah. Were you doing that open? Were you doing the subscarpal liposuction open? And, open. And what has been your safety concern with the lipoabdominoplasty that caused you to abandon it? The problem, the problem is simply that when it's a simple question you ask yourself, and I ask residents when they're liposuction, I say, "Great, do you know where you are? Are you in the subscarpus? Are you a hundred percent sure you are? There's no way you know. If you do it open and you're not sure, how the heck are you going to know when you're closed? So my point is, you're going to disrupt and and, and damage vessels, and Proofs in the pudding. And that leads I, to a wound healing problem. Is that your concern? Healing, in necrosis, edge necrosis. And I'm right. going to say something wacky. And that is, I don't think the people that do this a lot are telling us all the, all the news that they should be about the, what they call a little bit of, a little bit of, you know, uh, ecchymosis is actually a necrosis. So short answer is, as I like to say, in a lot of my procedures, the deal breaker for me is necrosis. And knock on wood, since I've stopped doing lipo at the time of my surgery of any undermined tissue and doing it as a secondary stage, I've done hundreds now, never had one edge necrosis, no wound healing problems. So for me, six months later, under in 15, 20 minutes, you do a liposuction with a band and you get a better result because you'd not, you don't have to think at all about blood supply. And that has resolved that. 
I would invite you to be in the audience and everyone to participate in Austin, the PSTM. Uh, Saldana is the Maliniac lecturer. So you can give that question to him. Um, Carl, Eric, Chris, any thoughts on light bulb dominoplasty? I've been doing light bulb dominoplasty for a long time. I haven't noticed an uptick in any wound healing problems, but I think it comes down to how aggressive you are with the liposuction. The one problem with light bulb dominoplasty is sometimes you uh, you may not be able to really pull down that uh, skin just below the costal margin. And so that's you have to have a little bit of a balance is if they've got loose skin up there, maybe you don't do as much liposuction so you can do more direct undermining or you may have to compromise and come back later, six months later in the office, do a little bit more additional upper abdominal liposuction. But I do think it's a safe procedure. That's because you're leaving that area intact for the blood supply when you do the liposuction. Right. Okay, Chris? Yeah, I, I will, I will uh, routinely undermine the to the costal margin. If I need to debulk, I will directly debulk under direct vision with... Um, uh, debulking the subscarpal fat um, with the bovi, not with the lipo cannula. I'll heavily liposuction the flanks, but I don't typically liposuction the central um, anterior segments at the time of the abdominoplasty. And that that is that is with, with Lauren's concerns for for viability. Um, it, it's helpful to hear the panel saying it's a safe procedure, but I don't do it right now. I did a study looking at that. You know, is there an advantage to limiting your dissection? Well, I had the same patient act as their own control. I used spy imaging equipment and i found that uh, there really was no difference in blood supply to the abdominoplasty flap uh, if you went ahead and sacrificed the medial row perforators you keep the lateral ones but in other words you don't need to make a tunnel dissection and by doing a traditional abdominoplasty i think you improve the, the cosmetic result because you get more mobility of that abdominal flap and you can secure the repair lower and keep the scar lower so you know Saldana, uh, he found it reduced his seroma rate, but I think it's because uh, he's doing less electro dissection with the tunnel dissection, not just by virtue of limiting the dissection itself. Alan, one quick thing. I asked Greg Bunky, I said, do you liposuction your random flaps when you do them? He says, of course I don't, Lauren. That's what we're doing with our abdominoplasty flaps. They're random flaps and you're liposuctioning them. So that's the reason why there's reason to consider that that could be risky. I like laterally as well, but never centrally because I'm not liposuctioning my random flap. I didn't do it when I was a reconstructive surgeon. So just for argument's sake here, you know, yes, if you're relying on zone three, the intercostal perforators, then the flap that you're undermining is a random pattern flap. If you look at Lane Smith from Las Vegas, he did a study showing that by doing the inverted V, you're keeping the dominant zone one blood supply intact the deep inferior epigastric artery, so that it's not not a random flap; it's an axial pattern flap. But that then that goes on to this concept of: do we do inverted V undermining or wider? So, as Chris said, you can get more skin out. L let's push forward with one final question: Can the panelists randomly give us any thoughts on a high def, like uh, high def abdominoplasty? All right, this is Carl. Um, the reason I wanted to talk about this is because on the internet, we see a lot of results, some that are stunning, some that look very fake to me, where there's like uh, a mound of six packs on an abdomen that shouldn't really have it. The results that I've seen in my practice are generally on people who are healthy to begin with, who are working out, who have relatively 
uh, a small amount of subcutaneous fat. And with a cannula, I can etch a little bit of a supra umbilical midline and maybe a little bit of definition laterally. But I haven't really been doing the horizontal etching because I'm not sure how that's going to hold up over time. And some of the results that I've seen with it are just seem a little bit unnatural. Um, I'm just curious what other people think. And Carl, we're talking about on abdominoplasties, not just liposuction patients. On abdominoplasties, yes. And are you considering all the other fat grafting areas like the shoulders and the chest to make it look better that they talk about? I, I have not jumped on that bandwagon yet. Okay. Any other comments? principle of liposuction in that plane is exactly against what we just said about staying out of the suprascarpal level. I'd say one biting overarching adage here that comes to mind, especially with somebody mentioning they can't tell the difference between before and after is related to our original discussion about overweight patients and should we do them. You know, the adage that you, when you have to tell the audience which is the before and which is the after, perhaps <laughs> you change your technique, that's something for all of us to remember, look at your results. And if you're not seeing much of a difference, you're just putting patients at risk. And, and that's a good thing to take home. Uh, one final question. Can you start a discussion, Lauren, on the cryptic potential for infections and particularly umbilicus? Sure. Um, this came up because of problems, as we all know. Uh, we change our methodology based upon our past bad experiences. And I had a I had a, a MERS infection um, uh, with a uh, abdominoplasty, and it turned out I did a study with a resident, and we found that there's MRSA lurking not only in our, our nasal cavities, but in our ear canals and our umbilicus, umbilicus. And so with that in mind, I started a protocol pre-op of, of, of decontamination, uh, antibacterial soaps, and mupirocin not only in the nose now, but in the ear canal, the umbilicus and even in the uh, on the nipples, just because that makes sense. And knock on wood, I haven't had a problem since. And in surgery, I have one nurse with a headlamp and another opening the umbilicus, and it's cleaned like never before. Because we all know we've 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 been shocked by what's lurking deep, and I think it's the number one cause of infection probably that's been cryptic with that in our world and in anyone else in our surgical world using the umbilicus. So that's been an eye-opener, something that I thought I had invented. But Thorik, Max Thorik in Chicago, originally described this in his 1936 book. So nothing's new, but it's definitely changed my practice. Have you seen any reduction in capsular contracture uh, having done that? Interesting. Uh, not enough cases to prove that, but intuitively would make sense if we have yeah. if the subclinicals involved. So good point. Uh, but no. I want to thank our outstanding panelists, Eric Swanson, Carl Gutowski, Chris Panucci, and Lauren Rosenfeld. I, I would encourage anybody with questions to please send them in. Uh, we'll give you a site to send them into. And if my colleagues and the society, my colleagues are willing to get up at seven o'clock or six o'clock on the, the West Coast, uh, I'd love to 
convene this group again because I think there are some interesting points that we can bring up uh, that we don't necessarily see at meetings when we're looking at pictures of before and afters. So I want to thank each of our panelists and the society for having us and uh, thank you for participating. Thank, thank you, you everyone. So thank you.